there were not really a lot of details given whether or not they really intended these specific passages to be used. That's still kind of what I got from Ron and what we're going to be following. And each of these passages and many others cover the phrase of works or not of works. And of course, that's something that's brought up many times and many times from the denominational world and sad to say, even some brethren who are adrift, they'll make the accusation that you are teaching something of the meritorious works or meritorious law keeping. And we want to see if these verses and others are teaching us that there's nothing for us to do or if we do have responsibilities. And that's what we want to consider. Now, in these passages here, we'll be looking a little bit more at the context, of course, but these particular verses, this is my PowerPoint, these particular verses are where you find the actual words of not of works or where that bad word of work comes into it. But we will be looking at more of the context, but there's no way that we can cover everything within each context or each passage where this is found. So we will be focusing more upon that particular phrase. But we do know that within the general religious world, people are wanting to tell us that there's nothing that we can do at all for our salvation. It is just simply the gift of God. It is by grace, by faith, by which we are saved, and man doesn't have anything to do. And of course, I don't believe that any of us really accept that kind of statement, but we want the scriptures to answer that itself. Let's turn to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9 and here in verse 11, it's just kind of the insert within the subject matter that's going on here where Paul says, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Now, yes, I did start reading right in the middle of the subject matter. But as we look at this, the Apostle Paul has been speaking here about God's promise to Abraham through Isaac. And then as he moves on down, he's speaking about, of course, the seed that would be coming through or from this lineage, that being, of course, Jesus Christ, through the line of Isaac. As he goes on down, we see that God chose the nation of Israel by choosing Jacob. Jacob and Esau, the twins still within their mother's womb, had not done anything at all. And that's what the Apostle Paul is pointing out here for the children not yet being born, those twin boys there within the womb, having done neither good or evil, God in his providence, God in his omniscience had chosen a nation. He didn't necessarily choose one of the boys, but in Genesis 25 and 23, we see that God had pointed out how there are two nations within you. So he was looking down through the stream of time, and he chose a nation by choosing this one child. But the point being made, and this is one of the most simple of the passages that we'll be looking at, he is showing that no one person... No man, and certainly not these unborn children, had done anything, had accomplished any works at all in order to influence his decision. It was just by election. 
It was by his choice. Mr. Zerwick in this place said not on the ground of deeds, but of vocation or meaning a calling. So no one had done anything or certainly had not placed God under any obligation or had even influenced him to make his decision. He made the call. That's the way we use the phrase sometime. It was God's call and he made the call. And he chose the one for that nation and for his plan to be working on down through the ages. So even with all of the difficulties that we can find and Alan can explain through the book of Romans, this one isn't really all that difficult. It just points out that here in this verse, man, you didn't do anything. You didn't influence me. I didn't ask you for your opinion. You didn't accomplish anything to obligate me to choose one way or the other. I made the call, and it's through this lineage by which my seed will come. But let's move on to the next one already. In Ephesians 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we find this one being used more often to try to prove more of a Calvinistic means of salvation. And we'll begin with verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So here the Apostle Paul continues with much of the same subject matter, might say, as we can read through different passages in the book of Romans. And he points out these things, how God has offered salvation to mankind. Now here within this passage, he does mention mercy on up in verse 4. And just for a simple definition, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. When you do not receive the punishment or whatever that you do deserve, you're being shown mercy. And grace is when you are being given or you are offered what you do not deserve. And both are mentioned here in this passage. So he shows both of these things. God who is rich in mercy. As soon as mankind had sinned or his nation had drifted, he didn't just look down and just wipe them off the face of the earth, which is what they deserved. Through his mercy, he did not. But the, he did come up with a plan to offer them salvation, which is through his grace. They didn't deserve that opportunity, but it was being offered to them. 
So by this grace, they're being given the undeserved opportunity to be able to be saved. Now he points out here, even as he had in Romans, Romans 3.23, we know all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when you stay in sin, then you can earn something. You earn wages. We know those wage, that wage is death. But he offers something better. Here, we know that all were dead in trespasses, but God was willing to make them alive through Jesus Christ. But they were not made alive through Jesus Christ unconditionally. We know by rightly dividing the word that there are still conditions that had to be met. And that's where some confusion gets in. People start believing that if you meet conditions that God has set for his blessings, then they want to equate that with working for wages. And yet, that is not the case. There was no great work or works of man that brought about salvation or its plan. And Paul's pointing that out here in Ephesians 2. A work is an action that earns payment in return. Or we could call it a work that is something that just simply complies with instructions or conditions that doesn't necessarily earn a wage. Our salvation is not a work salary situation. It is not performance and payment due. But God's offering of grace never kept him from having conditions being made to the recipients. So true that grace is undeserved favor, but the scriptures never teach that grace is unconditional favor. Mankind still does not deserve the opportunity to comply with said instructions or to receive the blessings of the grace. Even in another place, in 1 Peter 3 and in verse 21, verse that's very familiar to us concerning baptism, uh, Mr. Canton in his commentary says, The prerogative is with God to name the conditions or means and on the part of his creatures to accept, comply and be saved or reject and be destroyed. Yes, that's God's prerogative. But he nowhere says you can earn it. So even here in Ephesians 2, he shows out God's wonderful love to have mercy, his wonderful love and his planning to have a plan of grace by which we can be saved when it is coupled with faith and we'll find proofs of the faith that a man is to have for salvation as well. And he lets, lets us know it is not by works, it is not by our works for wages by which we can be saved. We are not working for the wages of salvation. But we do notice here in verse 8 that grace is coupled with faith. So it is not grace alone. It's grace coupled with faith. And here the word for faith, it is a feminine noun in the original language, and there is a corresponding verb form, belief, that Jesus says in John 6 and verse 29, says this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So we have the original noun and then the verb form that Jesus says is a work. Jesus called it that. 
but he still isn't saying it's a work that you can do. And as soon as you do it, yeah, you deserve a check of salvation. Here you go. No, but it is something that he requires. It is a type of action. And we'll see a little bit later what the proof for that belief may be. But the problems come in when individuals want to add the word only or alone to many of these different things. But the scriptures are not like just little plugs where we can look through and we can unplug this one and this is what I'm going to live by and this is how I've decided I'm going to be saved. But it, they're more in a sense of like a lot of different puzzles. I'm not a puzzle maker. Sharon had about 1,100 pieces of puzzle out on our table in the middle of the living room. And I don't know why my blood pressure feels like it goes up just looking at all that. But it's, it's not for me. Not interested. But I don't believe that God's word is a big puzzle to raise our blood pressure. But there are pieces and parts that we put together to understand the truth. And that's what we have to do, again, as we've alluded to, to rightly divide the word of truth. We find all these things, and there's a way for them to mesh, and they all work together. There's that word again, work. But they'll all function together to bring about the desired end of salvation. So is grace offered, and does it work totally alone without conditions? It is offered, but it doesn't act totally alone without conditions. We've already seen it's been coupled or joined with faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So there's even more activity. Here we have in Hebrews 11 an entire chapter devoted to faith and what? Actions. Actions that prove that faith. Actions that exemplify the faith. Actions, whenever one sees or hears, understands the Word of God, and they deal with it, they work with it, they perform what they hear. They prove that they believe it. By faith, fill in the, the rest of the verse. So these passages are not teaching that there's nothing to which we must comply, but rather man never did nor does anything to earn salvation, nor can man put God into his debt. We can't do that. And so he's showing you comply with these conditions, and yes, salvation can come. God hasn't needed our input to decide how we might be saved. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we find this other verse in verse 9, but we'll be looking at least in verses 6 through 10 of this passage. Here as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not according to our works, 
but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So here we find a little bit more, and we're still, still noticing the writings of the Apostle Paul. And he's pointing these things out, these wonderful blessings that are found in and through Christ. He continues to show that the saving plan had nothing to do with man's input, energies, or merit. Never did. He says that we have been saved. He shows that we are the recipients of this wonderful power of God, which we know is the gospel, Romans 1 verse 16, in order to save man. So he has saved us. He has called us. He says, not according to our works. God was not there in heaven and looking down and said, man, that person or that group of people down there, they have worked things out so well, they deserve salvation. Look at everything that they've done. No, he didn't say that at all. And that's what Paul points out right here as well. He has called you. He has saved you. Not according or not by means of what you have accomplished or what you deserve. He did it anyway. He made a way anyway, more in spite of the way mankind had been living. As a matter of fact, as he goes on down in verse 9 still, all these things were given to us in Christ Jesus. And there that key phrase, before time began. You talk about planning ahead. I make some plans sometimes. But I'm more spontaneous on a lot of things than I am a detailed planner. God planned ahead. Can you imagine planning ahead before time. I can't grasp that. Even Paul's opening words to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before Time began. Before time began. God had this all worked out before time began. Time measures existence. Time measures existence, and God started measuring the existence of his creation in Genesis 1. The evening and the morning was the first day. But he already had a plan. Already had a plan. Before the beginning, there was simply that which existed with deity. It was during this period God worked out a way to save his creation that had not yet been created. He planned it through Christ. So it just stands to reason, no, it wasn't by works. It wasn't by anything that I've done or anyone else has done because we weren't yet. We weren't there to put in our two cents. Matt had not had the opportunity to work or to plan or anything else. He'd not even been created. 
1 Peter 1, verse 17 through 20, Peter says, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, again, just as a quick insert here, it is interesting that if work has absolutely nothing to do with our life, why is God paying any attention to it there, as Peter was pointing out? Verse 18, going on. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He was foreordained before the foundations of the world. This still confirms that man had nothing to do with the planning for or the details of his unmerited salvation. Peter shows that man's salvation was not and could not be bought with riches of the world or certainly not by man's standards or any of man's accomplishments. Proverbs 20 and verse 9, the wise man said, Who can say? I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Now, we can't do it on our own. Can't do it on our own. But only through the plan of God just to comply, to go along with what the Lord directs, or how he directs us. So long before time, God made a plan without man's merit, input, efforts, or influence. God graciously made a plan for man, but also set conditions. He set conditions. Let's move down to Titus 3. Here, again, is one that is used quite often, one that many will run to, especially try to combat baptism or different things that we understand in the Scriptures. But here... Here he says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on, on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So here Paul gets to another point. And we see how he's dealing with all of these things. It's interesting to look back, remind them to be subject to rulers, authorities, to obey. There's all these things that people want to fight against. You don't have to do anything. Don't have a list of things that you have to obey. And yet Paul is saying you need to be, obey need to be obeying. There are some of these individuals that he says were disobedient. Disobedient to what? If there aren't any instructions or commands, they're disobedient to something, and they needed to be changing. 
But as we look into this, he still just continues in showing how God has it all worked out. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, verse 4, not by works of righteousness which we have done. That's where that phrase belongs. It was not by or because of works of righteousness that we have done that God sent his kindness or his love to us through Jesus Christ. He's not saying that there's not a work or obedience, if you don't like the word work. He's not saying that there isn't something for us to adjust our life to that he, as he directs. But he, again, he's saying there wasn't any merit on our part that caused God to send his kindness, to express his love, to send his son. None of those things came or were being done because of some special quality within us. But it was because of his love. It was because of his plan and the things that he was willing to do for us. And that's what we need to be understanding. The appearance of the kindness and love of God was not brought about by any work that man could do. We've already seen that the plan was arranged before man even showed up to begin with. Man didn't have anything to do with the planning. It still does not take away responsibility from us to conform to God's conditions. But we see that it was not because of our merit. But these first three verses we see are still teaching and showing us both positive and negative instructions. Yes, there are things we must do. There are things that we have to stop doing. And we need to be ready to obey. It says we need to be ready for every good work. Grace isn't even mentioned here. It's not even mentioned. But we, the principle is mentioned here. And of course, then it goes on down in this part about the washing of regeneration. I guess scholars through the years and those who study it and those who write the many different commentaries through the centuries and those that don't want to say you need to be baptized, they've really battled over that one. Because in all honesty, in their scholarly position, they all seem to admit it's talking about baptism, but they don't like to say it. Even Mr. Barnes, we know how he can go to great lengths to try to show that baptism is not needed for salvation. But here in this place, he says, it is that outward washing or baptism, which is the emblem of regeneration and which is appointed as one of the ordinances connected with salvation. So he uses a lot of words to try to go around it, but he has to admit it is involved and it is a condition here for the salvation. Is it a work of merit? No. Do we earn something? No. Is it obedience? Yes. Or we could say it is a work of faith. So we see that grace isn't even mentioned, but mercy is. And here the mercy is joined to the washing, to the laver, or to the baptism that the scriptures teach. 
So still, the point of all these passages is that man has had no part in the organization of God's plan to save him. Never. God never called man in as, a, as an advisor or a designer. How do you think I ought to do this? He wasn't in a quandary because he had it worked out before man got on the scene and messed things up. Man has not done anything to work for a wage of salvation. God already had the plan in place and man had not had the opportunity to work because it was done before time. But man could not even work enough to earn the right to pay off one single sin on his own. He couldn't. We can't wash away one single sin by anything or a lifetime of things that we would be doing on our own to merit it. But does this mean that obedience or actions on our part have nothing to do with salvation? Well, let's see. Paul mentioned grace in Titus 2. We know this. Paul didn't write the letter to Titus or any of the others in chapters and verses. It was divided up to help us in our, our study. So earlier, though, in this letter, he does mention grace in what we call chapter 2 and in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So this grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to every man. It is offered to all men. So does that mean that all men are just immediately saved by grace because it's offered to all men? Well, we know that's not the case. Even though John also wrote in 1 John 2 and in verse 2 that Jesus is our propitiation. And he says, not just for ours, but he says for the whole world. And propitiation just simply means Jesus was the sacrifice that satisfied. It satisfied the righteousness of God in order to be able to forgive mankind of his sins. So Jesus was the propitiation, and it would be able to satisfy God enough to forgive the whole world of its sins. But is God's grace and the propitiation of Christ just like a blanket that he just tosses over the whole world and the whole world is automatically saved? No. We know that from the clarity of many other passages. It is not just a blanket that happens without actions on others. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, the teaching there of the narrow gate and the wide gate. Very few find or work their way through the narrow gate and the obstacles to reach eternal life. Many find that wide gate that leads to destruction. We understand that. We've heard that all our life. But we also see just a little bit further down within this same passage that there are things that we need to be engaged in. And the Lord was gracious enough to be able to give us instructions. We know that we need to be following the word of the Lord. We know how Jesus says, Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be likened unto a foolish man. Now we don't want to be that one. We want to be the one on up in verse 24. 
Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. Remember that story? Building your house upon a solid foundation or upon the sand. And even a little bit further up in verses 21 through 23. Those very religious people trying to serve and do things in the name of the Lord. He says, not everyone that just says, Lord, Lord, is going to be saved. But who? He who does the will of my Father. They had done a lot of great things, but Jesus said, I don't know you. You are working in lawlessness without law. They were doing things that were not sanctioned by the will of God. So, yes, we need to be doing things. Well, is he saying anything about merit? Was he saying anything about earning wages that would equate to eternal life? No. Even back over here with the grace that Paul mentioned in Titus 2, it's appeared to all men. What does he say in verse 12? It says, it teaches us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live. And that's speaking about an obligation. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So grace teaches. It's not just a blanket that goes over and we receive the benefits without any action on our own part. We need to be doing something. Grace teaches and offers instruction. And we can see that even in the Old Testament, like the pictures we had up here of Brother Juanitos. And even though we're not living under the Old Testament law, there are Old Testament principles. God's principles don't change. He's still the same God. He doesn't change his morals. The principles are there. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, we're told Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And there with that Old Testament word, grace pretty much has the same definition then as it does now. In other words, then did Noah deserve an opportunity for salvation? No, it's by grace. He found grace. And God didn't say, Noah, you found grace in my eyes. Now look out your window and look at that big boat I provided for you. Didn't work that way, did it? Noah had a lot of work to do, a lot of instructions to follow. And there were at least four times in the account that we find that he had done all things were done as God had commanded Noah. And all of that was still in compliance with the grace that was shown to Noah and his family. By grace, you and your family are being saved. Now get to work. Get to work. Don't you imagine that when the fountains broke up and all the rain started, Noah and his family and all those animals that came were all shut up in the ark, and people realized, hey, that preacher of righteousness was right. Don't you imagine people started looking around to try to find some kind of flotation device? They would start trying to copy what this man had done according to the instructions of God. You think the copies worked? No. The copies won't work. 
even if some thought, well, mine will be just as good. Matter of fact, I have a boat right over here on the lake. I think it'll still work just as good as that one. It wouldn't have because it wasn't according to God's plan. They hadn't met the conditions. Was Noah and his family still saved by grace? Yeah, but they met the conditions. There are other examples we could look at. Think about Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Did he cleanse himself? Did he heal himself of his leprosy? Did he deserve to be cleansed of his leprosy? No. And at first he denied and he wanted to do something that would be just as good to him. There are those rivers back home. They're a lot cleaner. We know the story. He finally gave in humbly and he was cleansed. What about the blind man of John chapter 9? I wonder what's going through his mind. I'm already blind and you packed mud on my eyes and want me to find my way through town to a specific pool and wash it off? Sounds absurd, doesn't it? Must not have sounded too absurd to him. He did it. He complied with the conditions and he received his sight. I wonder if he explained it to many people going through town and what kinds of laughter and heckling he might have had. Just like people laugh, heckle, and deride when we give them the plain scriptures. No, he didn't deserve it, but he gave in to the conditions that were set by deity and he received his blessing. So in closing down, whether we call it works, obedience, compliance, or submitting, it all amounts to being obedient to the will of God just like Noah was. Noah had nothing to do with the planning or the design of the ark, but he submitted to the conditions that he and he and his family then were saved. We have absolutely nothing to do with earning salvation. We have had nothing to do with the design of the plan, but we need to listen to it and submit to these conditions of grace, and then we can be blessed. James 2 and 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. If someone wants to unplug certain passages or unplug certain verses and build their belief system upon it, you could do it just as well with this one as you could with those on grace. And say, I'm a good worker. And I can believe in my works. It says right here, a man is justified by works and not just by faith. I'm going to work my way in. I'm not going to get very far. James doesn't say that we earn it. And he doesn't say works only. But he gives us some other examples. In verse 23, there in James 2, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. How do we know that Abraham believed God? Well, one way that we know is that James just told us that. But was there any other evidence? Hebrews 11 and verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed. He obeyed. That's how we know and with other evidence that he believed God. He obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not even knowing where he was going. But he obeyed. That's how we can know today. James 1, 21 through 25. 
It shows how we need to receive or accept with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our soul. This sounds like action, doesn't it? Receive God's word. Verse 22, be a doer of the word and not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed. He will be blessed in his deeds or in what he does. Action. Actions will prove our belief, actions will comply with the conditions of grace and salvation, says nothing about working or about working for wages. Ephesians 2 and verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What would we do with something that doesn't perform or function according to its purpose or design? What would we do? Say with a piece of machinery or a part in that machinery. And if it does not function according to the purpose of its design, we'd try to fix it or we'd get rid of it. Fix it or get rid of it. God made a way for us to be saved and we comply with those set conditions. He created us for good works that we should walk in them. There is a way that we are supposed to be living that is in obedience to him. As Abraham lived by faith, we accomplish these things and we follow God according to the way that he directs us according to the way we're supposed to be designed and we accomplish it. John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What we have done are considered even at the time of the resurrection. What are we doing? In what way are we being formed or what way do we follow? These works follow us even after death, Revelation 14, 13. And yet we will have those who tell us there's nothing for you to do. Nothing for you to do. Luke 17, verse 10. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done which was our duty to do. So it's almost as if the Lord knew where man's mind would be going. Oh, you're busy. You're doing good. Motive has a lot to do with it. Don't think that you earn it. There's a myriad of New Testament and Old Testament scriptures and principles that show us we do have responsibilities to God and are, that are fulfilled through obedience, through action, through works, but all of this is in compliance with God's will, and we are not earning salvation. We are still saved by God's grace.